0: Hello, and welcome to CCBJ Perspectives podcast, providing access to leaders and influencers within the ever-evolving ecosystem of lawyers and legal professionals. Today, we welcome our guest, Colleen Ammerman. Colleen is director of the Harvard Business School Gender Initiative, which catalyzes and translates cutting-edge research to transform practice, enable leaders to drive change, and eradicate gender, race, and other forms of inequality in business and society. She has authored various articles and teaching materials on gender and work and is a researcher with life and leadership after HBS, a longitudinal study of the post-MBA paths of Harvard Business School alumni that examines how race, gender, and other factors shape their life and career experiences. Colleen is also the co-author with Boris Greisberg of Glass Half Broken, shattering the barriers that still hold women back at work. Harvard Business Review Press 2021. Colleen, it's a pleasure having you with us today. Thank you for taking the time.
1: Yeah, thank you, Kristen. Happy to
0: chat. So congratulations on your book that's coming out this year. Um, It sounds very exciting and like, I would imagine a labor of love.
1: Yes, indeed. We actually have been working together. Um, My co-author, Boris Groisberg, who's a professor in the Organizational Behavior Unit at Harvard Business School for almost 10 years and um, started writing the book in earnest, I don't even know, maybe three or so years ago, something like that. But a lot of the um, kind of prior work, research, and some kind of pieces of the book were started long before that. So it's definitely been kind of a a long-term labor of love for us to figure out how to pull um, a lot of different research together and... um, you know, provide sort of some answers about why we are so stalled when it comes to gender equity in the workplace, particularly the representation of women in leadership. You know, why we're not seeing more progress, um, and then provide you know sort of a roadmap for how to you know restart momentum and actually move the needle.
0: Well, it's certainly a topic that's near and dear to my heart, having been a former president of our local YWCA um, and board member there. And the work we do here at CCBJ, we are really dedicated to dealing with gender and racial diversity and, and just equity overall for um, underrepresented groups. So we're grateful to have you here today to talk about this important topic. I think let's start off with what you refer to as the stalled revolution.
1: Sure. 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 So, you know, a lot of progress, to say the least, was was made, um, particularly in kind of the latter half of the 20th century in terms of Women's entry into the labor force and women's access to education—that's related to, you know, the kinds of professional careers that are, um, you know, high-earning and impactful in society—and that was great. I mean, in fact, a lot of gender discrimination and all kinds of discrimination used to be perfectly legal, right? Um, it wasn't until, you know, some landmark court cases and uh, the passage of different laws, you know, very much occasioned by really a lot of organizing and activism, um, to to make some, some things that used to be perfectly acceptable, unacceptable, right? It used to be normal to have classified ads that were segregated by gender, right? So it was like, you know, there were truly, you know, not just kind of in practice, but officially sort of certain jobs for women, certain jobs for men, sexual harassment didn't become something that uh, you could bring a, a legal claim about until the 1980s. So, you know, the fact that, we sort of outlawed all kinds of discrimination and even things like, you know, uh, women's access to education, as I mentioned, right? So, you know, uh, you know, a school like Harvard college didn't, you know, become co-ed until, um, you know, the second half of the 20th century. And so, that was tremendous. That obviously made a big difference to women's sort of access to careers. However, what we saw happen was um, in the, starting in kind of the 1990s, we've experienced kind of this stall where women have really since then kind of topped out at about 20% in leadership, really across, you know, the vast majority of sectors and industries. And we haven't seen a lot of movement on that um, in the past, you know, 20, 25 years. And so there's a lot reasons for that. Um, But what's really happening is that, you know, while we, you know, have a lot less sort of, you know, de jure discrimination, there's just a lot of more subtle barriers, right? Implicit biases, uh, kind of structural features of the workplace that aren't aimed at you know, discriminating against women, but have the effect of making it harder for women to succeed. And these are just harder to tackle. You know, they need to be unpacked and there needs to be more work, um, both in terms of people's individual biases and structural barriers um, to really level the playing field. And so that's where we're at today is needing to kind of attack these more subtle, more persistent barriers um, if we really want to get out of this kind of stalled momentum.
0: So Colleen, what and how have you identified the obstacles or greatest obstacles for women in the workplace? I mean, we've chatted previously and we know that, as you mentioned, there are a lot of assumptions made and things like that. But I'm sure you and Boris have really drilled it down and categorized it in ways that, you know, our audience may not be thinking about these issues.
1: Yeah, I think it's important to kind of unpack and recognize that, you know, the different facets of discrimination and sort of the 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 different factors that collude to make it harder for women to succeed and progress. It's what social scientists would call an overdetermined problem, you know, which means that it's um, not just what, there's not just one factor, which is what part of what makes it so hard, right? So, you know, companies might be able to say, you know, truly eliminate a lot of bias in their hiring, right? But- Yet they're still not seeing the outcome of that. As you know, more and more women in the leadership pipeline and kind of equal gender representation at the top, and that's frustrating, right? Because it's like, wait, we've eliminated bias in this really important process. You know, we we feel like this is actually quite equitable, but the issue is there's lots of other things going on um, that you know continue to perpetuate inequality. So so it's just hard to tackle. Um, you know, just taking a broad view. There are a few things going on. So, you know, one, as I mentioned, is just the role of the implicit or what's often called unconscious bias um, that people bring to their interactions and people bring to how they assess and evaluate others. And this is not just, you know, sort of men being unconsciously biased toward women, right? That's not actually how it operates. It's really just the fact that you know, all of us uh, have a certain set of assumptions and biases and expectations about other people that are kind of rooted in in stereotypes um, and we may not even be aware of it. So this is something that is actually quite well known at this point, Um, you know, the original work uncovering the existence and the role of implicit bias was done by Professor Mazarin Banaji and Anthony Greenwald. And, uh, you know, they discovered that this was really playing a role in how people viewed men and women. And, and we all hold these biases, right? So women have them too. Um, and what it means is that we view people, you know, through through kind of a clouded lens. Even if we, you know, very much believe, you know, in gender equality and believe that women are, you know, just as capable at work and just as suited to leadership. It's really not about your explicit beliefs. It's just, you know, these, um, these kind of lingering um, and deeply rooted, you know, expectations and assumptions, you know, again, just based on kind of continued inequality in society. So the issue is that we kind of bring that to the table in the workplace, um, and that can have lots of effects on people's careers, right? It can mean that when you're evaluating two different people to hire or to promote or to give a stretch opportunity to, you are not necessarily viewing them in the same way if they're of different genders, even if you want to, and you sort of believe that you should evaluate them in the same way. Um, And that is something that, you know, as I said, it can be kind of difficult to change um, because these are unconscious biases. We're not aware of them. It's not as simple as just you know, I believe, you know, men and women should have the same opportunities. So that's kind of a broad phenomenon that can really influence and shape all kinds of processes in an organization. And if you think about, you know, knowledge work and white collar work, so much of people's career progression really is determined by, you know, the opportunities they get from other people. It's very relationship driven, right? So it's like, you know, the performance assessment you get from your manager, it's mentorship, it's, you know, sponsorship from um, senior colleagues, it's people, Um, You know, putting your name up for a promotion. It's your manager saying, hey, you know, this is a stretch opportunity. You know, here's a a global assignment or here's, you know, a high profile project. I'm going to give you this opportunity to really grow um and shine and you know we know that uh you know all these kinds of developmental opportunities um just aren't equally distributed between men and women often because of these unconscious biases that people individually um bring to the table so that's sort of one piece i mean the other piece is also just kind of structural features of the workplace you know our workplaces were you know originally built for what you know scholars would call the ideal worker right so this is a man who has um, a stay-at-home spouse and can kind of fully devote himself to the job Um, and that was the norm for a long time but actually has not been the norm for men or women for a very long time now yet our workplaces still even as we try to change them kind of still rest on some of these assumptions so that's where you have you know issues around high performers um you know, being understood to be the people who spend the most time in the office, totally unrelated to what their output is, right? We just have this assumption, well, if I'm seeing Jim at 8 p.m. every day or, you know, getting emails from him, at eight or nine at night, he he's dedicated and he's a high performer. You know, while I'm seeing Jane, you know, I know, you know, she is in the office for fewer hours uh, and maybe is doing um, less email late at night, you know, whatever it may be. Um, we're making an assumption about who's the stronger performer. Um, and often we do that without really regard to what they're actually producing or their effectiveness, right? It's just, we have this ideal worker in mind, which is the, you know, person who's 100% dedicated to work. Um, and then we sort of evaluate people based on that, which again, disadvantages women. So there's kind of these different structural features of the workplace and definitions of success. That tend to disadvantage women, and then the third piece, um, of course, is the way that inequality at home continues to interact with inequality at work. You know, we still um, live in a society where there is a kind of a strong paradigm for um, women to put caregiving first, and to really, um, if they're in a you know d- a dual career heterosexual couple, for the the woman's career to really be a lower priority. There's still so much social pressure around that, even if again individual couples really want to be more egalitarian. Um, Um, It can be hard to do that um, because of the social pressure because you know work is not really again work isn't really set up for that. Um, So, the inequality at work can really uh, sort of be um, reinforced by inequality at home, and you end up with, um, you know, women really having to, um, in a way that men don't, choose between family life and work life, and, uh, you know, really, for a lot of reasons, um, often sort of deprioritizing their career, even if it's something that they really care about and want to do, it can just become um, difficult, To manage in kind of the current context socially and in the workplace. So those three features of what women are dealing with, you know, kind of biases of the people around them and that evaluate them, structural features of the workplace that are kind of set up, you know, the deck is stacked against them there, and then continued inequality when it comes to caregiving really kind of collude to, you know, you can sort of see it before you create this obstacle course for women to navigate if they want to um, grow and advance in their careers.
0: Well, I can certainly relate to all of that. I'm very fortunate that my husband is an equal opportunity partner in our household um, and hope and always has been. But I do I do have many friends and colleagues who are sort of gravitate towards certain functions, whether it's in the family, caregiving for elderly parents, or just deferring to certain things like taking children to and from school, um, especially with the pandemic. Colleen, tell us from your perspective and the research that I'm sure has been continuous, how has work from home during the pandemic impact women and what do you anticipate the long-term effect to be?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I think, I think in terms of long-term effects, a lot remains unknown of course and i think it's really unclear if the kind of net effect is going to be you know more positive or negative um I, and i don't think either one is inevitable in terms of how it's affected women today i mean going back to this note about inequality in caregiving you know definitely work from home under the conditions of the pandemic is it's quite well known already that that has actually impacted women's careers and women's participation in the labor force, um, negatively, you know, in a very dramatic way. A lot of job losses driven by women, um, you know, simply not being able to, you know, not having access to childcare and so, you know, under the conditions of the pandemic, kids aren't in school, you know, especially early on, you know, daycares weren't even open. It wasn't really, people didn't know how to safely have a, um, you know, a relative or, um, you know, an individual caregiver in their home. Um, So that was quite dramatic. And definitely drove a lot of women out of the labor force, particularly in some of the sectors where, you know, you have to physically, you know, you have to be at your job, you can't work from home. Um, and then, you know, going on, even as as we all sort of adapted a little bit more to that, um, even for women who actually can work from home, um, the caregiving burden has, you know, been really intense, um, you know, and had a pretty dramatic impact. So, you know, research has found different things, you know, looking at just work hours. Uh, There is a study by Caitlin Collins and colleagues which found that, you know, women with children reduce their work hours, you know, several times more than fathers with children. Studies of uh, academics have found that, you know, women were very early on already starting to uh, submit, you know, fewer papers to journals, right, which is kind of just the standard output productivity metric for people in academia. And that was driven by this caregiving burden. And, you know, we've also seen, of course, you know, individual stories, you know, things in the news, you know, of of, of women bringing some legal claims, you know, against employers who denied them leave that should have, you know, been guaranteed to them under the Federal CARES Act and employers just not really accommodating their needs. Um, so we've seen a lot of job job exits and, you know, reduction of women's participation in the labor force. What I think also is really important that's talked about a little bit less is the um, w- way that women who have managed to maintain their jobs um, and are working at home, the kind of stress that they're under and how that's impacting them just globally um, not just at their jobs. So the most recent Women in the Workplace study um, that came out from Lean in and McKinsey late last year, you know, found that women are in fact quite worried about how they're being perceived at work at this time of lack of you know, school, lack of childcare, um, and work from home. So it's not simply that, you know, they're leaving jobs, although that's definitely a big problem, or reducing hours, you know, these are big problems. But I think for a lot of women who have been able to hold on to their jobs, you know, and really want to maintain their career progression, you know, they're um, under an enormous amount of stress, and it's really affecting, you know, their experience at work. I think companies, you know, are, if they play this wrong i think in danger of really alienating um a lot of their women workers and potential women employees if if they're sending a message that you know they don't really understand you, you know what working parents are facing right now and creating expectations that are really unmanageable i think that post pandemic as gradually you know hopefully we all begin to get back to normal It's really going to hit companies' reputations um, as people do have more choices. You know, I certainly, even though I personally actually don't have kids, I would not want to work for a company that, you know, was cavalier about what working parents and, you know, that typically affects, you know, mothers more than fathers are facing. You know, that would be something that I would, you know, would look at um, with an employer. Um, So I think those are, you know those are all real impacts um, and they're not over. Unfortunately, the pandemic is going to go on. Um, Now, I do think, as I said, what, what remains to be seen and how it's going to play out could be positive or negative. So, you know, the shift to remote work and the fact that companies are realizing that a lot more is possible remotely than may have been assumed. And in fact, it's not necessary to the degree that many companies and managers have thought to have people in the office to have that literal FaceTime um, could be positive right if it shakes up some of our expectations and norms about you know what it means to be productive and what it means to be successful uh, and all of that, that could be a good thing right if we actually can sort of start to break down the culture of FaceTime the culture of you know needing to be in the office for. X number of hours a week and, you know, needing to be there before your boss arrives, et cetera, et cetera, and really focus more on people's output, which for a lot of people in white collar jobs, you know, can be done almost anywhere, uh, at least a big chunk of their job. That could be great, right? That could really mean that we we start to shift more to evaluating people on their output um, and less on some of these kind of old norms that disadvantage women. Unfortunately, I don't think that's inevitable. I think there's also the risk that, what you end up having is is something that reinforces those norms. Where you may make remote work available, but if it's seen as kind of lower status, or seen as oh, the less committed people, you know, work from home because you know they want to be you know manage their family responsibilities better. And you have far more women, you know, doing remote work um, than men. You could end up with this kind of two tiered system that actually reinforces the norms. Um, we already know from past research that taking you know existing flexibility, family accommodations like, you know, flex hours and uh, work from home um, and parental leave and things that already exist that can, you know, research has shown that that can detrimentally impact um, careers, right? You can be seen as less committed to work in some companies if you take advantage of that. So I think companies need to be smart about it and, and actually be proactive in making sure that you know, there, there's not cultural messages being sent that remote work is for, you know, kind of a second class citizen of employee, um, and the real, you know stars are still coming into the office, you know, nine hours a day, five days a week I think that's a risk. Um, but you know, what would be great is if companies were proactive and thoughtful about it and actually said, yeah, we need to, you know, rethink some of our assumptions, give everyone more flexibility, focus more on what people are producing, um, and uh, in that way, reduce some of the gender inequality that's kind of built into the old system.
0: So as you were speaking, I was jotting down a few notes, and it, it brought me back to a few things that I haven't heard many people talking about. So Back in the day, and I'm dating myself, Six Sigma was a really big popular tool for assessing productivity. And it was you know, largely applied to things like manufacturing, right, supply chain management, things like that, not white collar type work. And I agree with you, there is a perception of productivity. I, I will give um, our organization, Law Business Media, CCBJ, a little pat on the back you know, our attitudes here are just get your work done. And if you have to go to the dentist, like at two o'clock in the afternoon, nobody needs to know that go to the dentist and just know that, let us know you're off the grid for an hour or two. Same with with family issues. And you know, we have, some of us have children and some of us of more mature age, and some of us have younger children. But we're all managing whether it's, You know, yesterday I had to take the morning off to get my mother over to get her vaccine. You know, that's what it was. But I think one of my questions is, and you may not have the answer to this, Colleen, is about attitudes. And in my in my inner circle of working parents, I'm finding different attitudes about what you were describing as a reflection of productivity. Some organizations were very keen to get back into the office because they felt that there was a lack of productivity and other organizations were more concerned with safety. And are you seeing that as gender issues? And I'm raising this also because in our local school district, we're having a conflict right now where our administration is pushing towards bringing all the children back to school and the teachers who, and administrators who are disproportionately women and tend to be women of a certain age are objecting to it because of the spike that we're seeing here right now. And if you have anything to add with relation to just attitudes about safety versus productivity, um, no, it's a good question, and I
1: mean, you know, certainly I, you know, wouldn't want to put forward, you know, a perspective on. Um, you know, what's appropriate for companies to do from a safety standpoint. And just obviously, I'm not an an epidemiologist or, you know, an expert in anything like that. But I would say, you know, I, I think it's a little bit of a false dichotomy, right, between safer or more productive. Because, you know, and of course, this is something that needs to be sort of tailored to individual teams and companies. But I am a bit skeptical of the notion that, for most, again, if we're talking about kind of knowledge workers, you know, people who can do their jobs remotely, I'm a bit skeptical of the notion that there's a an absolute need, you know, to be in the office for for increased productivity. Now, of course, you know, I have been working from home, you know, for almost a year now. And absolutely, it's true that, you know, I am missing out on, you know, opportunities for kind of spontaneous collaboration and, you know, overhearing uh, a team talking about something that sparks an idea, you know, for my own team. Um, Also just kind of relationship management, you know, maintaining some of those weak ties, you know, that people that you don't work with directly, but you run into in the cafeteria. I mean, that's all definitely, true. Um, And I personally, you know, find a lot of value um, for my work in that. However, I think the notion that sort of managers or leaders can't um, assess the productivity or, you know, motivate their teams to be productive or kind of, you know, get a team to produce good good results on core business needs without seeing them physically, I think that is more of a, um, reveals some, you know, challenges about management rather than in the office versus out of the office, right? I think there's a lot of, you know, at this point, even prior to the pandemic, a lot of research done on remote work and, you know, managing distributed teams, that's only increased. I think there is, you know, quite um, quality advice and evidence-based guidance on that for managers, you know, some of it from, you know, um, folks at Harvard Business School um, that are doing great work. So I think that, There are a lot of places for managers to look to manage a remote team or distributed team effectively. Um, And so I think, you know, it's a bit of a false choice to write to for us collectively to try to set up this dichotomy between, um, you know, safety and productivity. And I think it is it is certainly possible while, of course, acknowledging that there are some losses with not being together in the workplace, I, I, I think you know, even just the pandemic, I think the fact that, you know, many companies, again, in kind of the knowledge workspace, if you think about, you know, different kinds of professional service firms have actually been quite successful um, during the pandemic, you know, have been very productive, and I've had, you know, great performance. Um, And so I think that shows that with the right tools and the right management approaches, productivity absolutely can be um, sustained and maintained from, from a remote standpoint. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but that's those are my off-the-cuff
0: no, that's, thoughts. No, that's super valuable. I mean, it's it's a discussion, and there's not a lot there's not a lot of hard data out there about attitudes, right? So we can just work with our our own observations, right? right. So you and I have spoken about men as allies, and I'm hoping we can just talk about allies in general you know both both men and women in my opinion have a responsibility to be allies and kind of circling back to the idea of attitudes to have an interest in furthering the success of the people on their team we've we've spoken about this before where people who may be facing challenges don't necessarily recognize that they were hired by an organization or an individual for a reason and that that organization or team leader is invested in their success and that's kind of where I've, i'm hoping we can talk about allies in that respect
1: yeah absolutely um I, I think it's really critical and i i liked how you mentioned before you know your own spouse right R- you know being a you know sort of an equal partner i, I think there's a huge role for men to play you know, both at home and in the workplace. And, and, you know, we talk about this in the book and really, you know, I think my co-author and I agree on this, you know, sort of see men as the most, you know, underutilized tool or resource in the the battle for gender equality. Uh, Even though I think we write about this in the book, they actually stand to gain um, very much from a more gender equal society and more gender equal workplaces. And I think, you know, it's interesting that um, in a lot of of ways, we haven't mobilized men to the extent that we could, um, when in fact, you know, gender inequality affects men. And often when we talk about changing workplaces, right, and sort of, you know, changing systems and changing norms, you know, as we were talking about before, you know, revamping a hiring process to um, eliminate biases that get built in or performance evaluation or different kinds of policies, you know, because of, you know, the continued underrepresentation of women in leadership, you know, men are the majority of people, you know, kind of making those decisions or having influence on those structural pieces as well. So it's not just about kind of their own individual biases they might be bringing to the table, but it's how do we sort of mobilize the people that really are in, you know, positions to create change. Um, So I think it's it's quite important. And I think that what I would suggest, or, or what I think is the right approach is sort of helping men to understand that um, to your point, Kristen, you know, gender equality is something that we all have a stake in, right? And we all sort of have both an opportunity and um, a responsibility to do our part. And this is true broadly, right? Not just in terms of, of um, gender discrimination, but generally speaking, right, all kinds of um, ways that people are disadvantaged, um, according to aspects of their identity, you know, different axes of inequality that obviously intersect with with each other, right? So if you're talking about women, you know, we have to acknowledge that women of color face different and additional and some unique challenges, right? So if we're not really attentive to that, what we end up doing is only talking about, uh, you know, challenges for white women, and then kind of benefits accruing to white women. And I don't think that's you know, really a victory for gender equality, right? If we have, you know, Fortune 500 CEOs, you know, that are, you know, 50-50, but yet it's all white women in those those roles. I don't think anybody would consider that kind of a victory for women. So I think this notion of allyship, as you said, is really important and to recognize that, you know, we all have a stake in it. I think men do stand to gain from gender equality. It's not a zero sum game. Um, So if we have a world in which, um, we don't have uh, this very strong kind of binary between, you know, work and family. That frees up men um, to actually be able to be more present in their families and as parents, which is something that lots of research has demonstrated men want to do. Um, and But often our, you know, our workplaces make it hard for them to do that, um, just as they make it hard for women to succeed at work, right? We sort of um, continue to reinforce, you um, this uh, these these traditional gender roles that I think are quite harmful um, to men as well in different ways. Um, and of course, you know, we know from lots of research that, greater diversity in our workplaces is beneficial for everybody, right? So um, when you have a team that's working on problem solving or innovation, you know, research has demonstrated that gender and racial diversity is beneficial for that. There's all kinds of ways that we can harness differences to be more productive um, be more effective at work, um, have deeper relationships, um, have more of a learning mindset um, where we're actually taking differences as you know sources of insight about our work. The chair of the gender initiative. At Harvard Business School, um, Professor Robin Ely uh, has has done work on this for a long time. Um, and with um, a colleague named David Thomas, um, you know, has written about how instead of just adding diversity or adding difference for different sake, you know, if we approach it in the right way, we can really harness, you know, the cultural differences that people bring to the table to actually help us, you know, do our jobs better. So there's all kinds of benefits that accrue if we really, all of us take up the goal of a more equitable and a more just workplace as something we all have the opportunity and the responsibility to contribute to, Um, it truly is going going to benefit all of us in the long run. And so I think the notion of all of us really um, committing to being allies toward people who are different from us toward people who, you know, are, um, you know, disempowered or disadvantaged um, is is really critical, right? I mean, and there's all kinds of micro ways that, pe- that we can do this, you know, as simple as, you know, the example that's often brought up of amplifying someone in a meeting, right? You know, especially if you're somebody who is in the majority in one way or the other and notice that a colleague, you know, who's in the minority along gender or race um, or, um, you know, another access of inequality is, is you know, doesn't seem to be being heard, you know, taking that opportunity to kind of turn it back to that person and say, wait, you know, I'd like to hear what, um, you know, Kristen had to say there. I I think um, it sounded like she had a new idea, right? Those are kind of micro moments. And then of course there's bigger structural change that we can um, influence if, you know, according to kind of our our sphere of influence, if we're a manager, how we run our team, you know, if we run a department or a company, you know, obviously a lot of power to change policy and change culture. And then even if you're not in in those um, leadership roles, right, just um, having conversations with your peers um, about these issues is also critical. So there's all kinds of ways we can kind of activate ourselves as allies. And I agree that that's um, a really important piece of the puzzle.
0: So, Colleen, I think you were leading nicely into the idea of how companies can make cultural shifts to become glass shattering organizations. Can you talk about that a little in a little more detail? Sure, yeah. Um, and that's something that we write about
1: in the book is sort of this this you know term that we came up with glass shattering organization. It's trying to sort of change the paradigm a little bit and say, okay we have had actually lots of women right you know kind of break through the glass this proverbial glass ceiling um you know and we profile some of them in the book and that's really important you know both in terms of kind of their own impact on society but also kind of as inspiration for you know, as aspiring leaders to remember that um, there are women who've kind of overcome these barriers and reach leadership and be able to have have a huge impact on their industry and on um, and on the world. Um, and that's great. And we, you know, part of what we do in the book is is to try to talk a little bit about how they did that, you know, what are some of the ways that they overcame barriers. But our view, um, my co-author and I, our view is that there's not enough conversation about how organizations need to change to actually, you know, instead of just seeing, you know, women one by one kind of, you know, punch through the glass actually do away with it. Right. So the whole, that whole ceiling eventually shatters. And so we wanted to kind of take that approach um, and say, okay, there's a lot out there about what women can do, how they can navigate, you know, the reality that exists in organizations. But what can we say about how organizations can really shift and change um, to 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 create a, a, a situation, create a context where um, women are able to succeed without having to overcome these obstacles. Um, and so you know, I think there's two axes along which, you know, companies can tackle this. So one is really, you know, about structures and systems. Um, And so it's really thinking about what are all the different processes in your organization that bring people in and that develop people and promote them up through the ranks and give them opportunities to lead, Um, right? So that's hiring, that's, you know, and breaking that down further into recruitment, into interviewing, um, salary negotiation, you know, thinking about integrating employees into organization, performance evaluation, um, you know, promotion and compensation, retention, you know, the whole kind of gamut, right? If you think about people management as this collection of all different processes that kind of move people along and people can either kind of you know, continue to grow and develop and reach their full potential, wherever that is, you know, it's not the CEO, you know, role for everybody, but, you know, they can reach their full leadership potential. Um, Or, uh, you know, what you can do is, uh, unfortunately, you know, a lot of people stall them at lower than their leadership potential, right? So they kind of get stuck at a level that's not reflective of their true capabilities. So part of it is, taking um, a systemic approach to those processes to kind of take bias out of them. And there's, again, you know, lots of um, facets to this. Um, And so, you know, that we go into great detail in the book, drawing on, you know, research from many, many colleagues um, and what we really know um, from the evidence about how that works. You know, what are ways that you can take bias out of different systems? What are the things you can do to kind of educate people uh, so that they're not inadvertently injecting you know, kind of their unconscious biasy, or how can you kind of take the opportunity for bias out of a process. So that's one, you know, big piece is what is the nature of the this people management systems that you have in place. And then the other piece to that, which is just as critical, or kind of two sides of the same coin. is just kind of inclusive and equitable management as a characteristic of the manager, right? Because end of the day it's people that are implementing these processes so absolutely you need to set up the processes so that you're not just building, building bias into them, you know, from the get-go. But then you also need to make sure that um, people managers are really committed to um, inclusive management. And that means, you know, self-reflection. That means, um, you know, acknowledging and identifying, you know, your own biases and kind of working to overcome them. That's something that, again, it's not just men. We all, you know, have the opportunity to do. We all um, have some of these implicit biases and all can kind of commit to overcoming them and, making sure they don't color our decision making um, that is building relationships across difference, um, you know there's a principle called homophily. Um, which may, basically means that we're all sort of naturally drawn to people who are like us, especially on big um, factors that are important in society like race and gender right so it's not again it's not to say that that is. Um, you know, sort of a nefarious phenomenon. It's just natural that we're drawn to people who are like us. But if we're managers, and we're not reflective about that, and we just kind of are not thinking about it and end up cultivating and mentoring and developing the people, you know, who share our race or our gender or both, you know, we're going to end up with what we see in a lot of companies with pretty homogenous groups at You know, middle and higher levels of the organization. So, inclusive management is reflecting on that and actively cultivating relationships across difference, both, you know, for yourself and among your team. And again, in the book, we go into kind of more detail about these principles. But at the end of the day, you know, it's about putting in the right systems and policies and then, um, you know, empowering managers to um, truly, you know, uh, work in an inclusive and equitable way with their
0: teams. So, Colleen, the, what is your hope for the future of women and other underrepresented groups in corporate America? Oh, that's a,
1: that's a good question. Um, I think writing this book, you know, our hope is to, as I said, sort of provide some answers about why we're not seeing the progress that I think you know most of us would like to see. Um, you know, and my my worry is that what happens when we don't see. The progress that we'd like to see is that it's kind of demoralizing or reinforces this, this kind of narrative that it's never going to change, right? And so it kind of leaves us really stuck. And so our hope is to kind of, you know, break through that and say, you know, look, that's not the case. Um, we're not stuck. It's not just inevitable, you know, that we're going to be kind of Topped out at 20% of women, you know, in leadership positions um, in many industries and, and not really seeing, you know, that's kind of the, the top marker in general. We don't have a lot of instances where it's greater than that. Um, and sort of say that's not, you know, inevitable. We can change this. There are some reasons why we we are kind of stuck there, but they're also some clear solutions to to those drivers, right? There are some things we know from research to address what those factors are. Um, So my hope is really, uh, you know, just that we'll be able to kind of break through where we are kind of stalled um, and kind of reinvigorate momentum. um, And again, sort of empower Everyone to think about this as a, a goal that we all have a stake in, right? To really shift from thinking about, you know, the lack of women in leadership or gender inequality at work as sort of a problem for women, and really, you know, sh- help people understand it as a problem for society, um, for business, for the world. Um, I think that's what's what's going to help us really uh, move the needle. Is for everyone to kind of internalize. Uh, that as the goal, right, and as um, as something that we all have a stake in, and, and that's what I think will really help us overcome, you know, kind of being at this stall place.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us today and for all your valuable insights. I, I, I think it would be really valuable to continue this conversation. Um, we're still planning to conduct our Women in Business and Law event in November of 2021, and, you know, if you can be a part of that, whether it's virtually or, or in real life, we would really appreciate that. I think we could do some really fun and um, valuable either panel discussion or breakout groups to talk to people about, about the research that you've done and your book um, and also the response to it.
1: Yeah, that'd be great. That would that'd be great. Love we'll to explore that. And yes, you know, I think we're, you know, the book will be out um this spring and we are very much, you know interested and excited to hear what resonates with people you know what people find useful you know hear reactions and kind of use that to as you said kind of continue the conversation um, so would, would be glad to reconnect and thank you so much for the chance to um, chat about this work and um you know share what our ideas are for advancing gender equity at work
0: well it's important work and we appreciate all of your efforts and it's been our pleasure to have you thanks